Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This month we are covering January 2022. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. If you'd like to claim CPD points for um, reading material and listening to the podcast, then head over to www.freemovement.org.uk slash training and you can find out all about how to do that there. Okay, so we are covering some stuff on asylum, quite a few different asylum issues actually. Um, We've got a bit on work visas and work rights. We've got something on EU rights as well, a few different items there. And we are going to finish off talking a bit about one of the hot topics of the day, which is citizenship deprivation. Okay, CJ, over to you. Thanks, Colin. We'll park the asylum stuff for the time being and start with an issue that affects not only migrants, but basically everyone who employs other people in this country. That is illegal working checks to see if staff have the right to work in the UK. They aren't mandatory as such, but doing the checks protects firms against being fined if they do hire undocumented migrants. And if you want to do those checks for foreign staff, you're supposed to do them for British and Irish staff as well to avoid discrimination. So at the moment, these checks can be done via the Home Office website if the person has digital immigration status or by checking a physical ID document. And during the pandemic, you've also been allowed to check a copy of the ID instead of the original physical document. Um, But you can basically choose whether you do it the online way, um, if possible, or the old-fashioned way. From the 6th of April, 2022, online checks will be mandatory for, I would say, most immigrants, certainly anyone with a, a normal biometric residence permit. So in those cases, if someone has a BRP, you'll have to do the check online. You log into the Home Office website. You basically view the person's immigration records. Yes, they have the right to work or no, they don't. Obviously, that system doesn't work for people who don't have an immigration record, such as British people. Uh, So their passport or ID will still need checked, either by looking at the original document as now, or, and this is a, a new bit, there will be an option to create a sort of fancy digital copy of the ID generated by what they call identity document validation technology. It's not wildly clear to me what that means, like what that looks like in practice. But uh, one thing that's clear is that you can't just, as you have been allowed to during the pandemic, scan or copy the ID. That's alternative to checks is out from the 6th of April. Um, So if you want an alternative to physical inspections, you'll have to use this new technology, whatever it looks like in practice. Uh, As I say, not entirely clear, but I guess we'll find out soon enough. Yeah, I haven't been following this closely, but I was a bit shocked to read that there's there's a charge attached to it. So um, I, I saw at the end of the blog post that um, the charge could be anything between £1.45 and £70 per cheque. And it sort of does beg the question of why would anybody do that at that kind of cost unless they absolutely had to? What What's the advantage to the employer? So I guess that, you know, it's an interesting issue. <sighs> <laughs> where the word interest is interesting is doing quite a lot of work to remember how, how geeky we are about these things but um yeah i, I i'm interested in that I, I i guess it'll become clear a bit later on yeah it's, it's a popular issue a lot of people have been writing about it it was a popular article um as you say that that range of potential charges for the new technology is really wide like there's a big difference between less than two pounds and about 70 pounds so that'll obviously affect whether people use it as an alternative to just you know, the old fashioned look at a person's passport. Uh, Asylum then, the big news this month was a case that uh, stops the Home Office from doing quick fire age assessments of people newly arrived off channel boats in Kent. 
the department had been uh, basically hiring its own social workers and saying, if we suspect that someone crossing the channel isn't under 18, as they say they are, just give them a once over and see what you think, are they a child or not? The High Court says that's unlawful. And unless someone looks very obviously over 18, then people in this situation, like they've just arrived, probably a traumatic journey on a dinghy, uh, they're entitled to a proper age assessment, one that is Merton compliant in the jargon after the Merton case, safeguards that the Merton process entails, rather than this truncated, uh, rapid age assessment process. So that's a good outcome, I dare say. The case is called RMA and another versus Coventry City Council and another 2022 EWHC 98 admin. Yeah, looks like unmitigated good news, uh, which is you know uh, unusual perhaps in, in this line of work. But um, it's pretty depressing, some of the, the narrative we've seen on age assessments and, and obviously it's, a, it's an issue that's come up with the um, with the new bill as well. But um, yeah, watch this space. Another case on asylum from the Upper Tribunal. This was about an Iraqi family seeking asylum here. Uh, they were very westernised, uh, was kind of the key to the case. They didn't believe in uh, religious observance or wearing headscarves or things like that. And the judge, uh, this was Upper Tribunal Judge Bruce, kind of gets into an almost philosophical discussion about, you know, we throw this word westernised around a lot in the tribunal, but what does it mean really? And is it grounds for asylum? Uh, you know, the fact that you really, really wouldn't fit in in a socially conservative society like contemporary Iraq. Is that grounds for asylum? In a nutshell, he says, no, in itself, being westernized doesn't make you a refugee. But he goes on to say that like decision makers should be alert to the fact that the things that make you westernized, such as, for example, rejecting religion, those things might make you a refugee because you might be persecuted for being an atheist or for political belief in gender equality or, or things like the actual convention reasons. Uh, so I suppose fairly common sense, um, but it's worth reading the judgment if you're interested in such things, uh, as I know you always are, Colin. Uh, I'll just do the citation YMKA and others, Westernization Iraq 2022 UKUT 16 IAC. Yeah, it's another one of those cases where it's worth reading beyond the um, beyond the head note, so to speak. It's quite a thoughtful um, thoughtful determination, and I think from from Gaynor Bruce, so it's a, it's a she rather than a he, in fact. Ah, there, there you go. My gendered assumptions, uh, quite rightly picked up on. Uh, there has been a country guidance case on Ethiopia. I, in my innocence, thought it might be to do with the civil war in Tigray, but the legal system grinds much slower than that, and this is about a Sort of much more long-standing issue uh, to do with the Oromo Liberation Front. Um, if you support that organization, are you now safe to go back to Ethiopia? The Home Office argued yes, uh, but the Upper Tribunal says no, uh, which is helpful uh, in those cases. There's more analysis uh, on the website beyond that uh, very short summary. Um, just a shout out to the pupil barristers at One Pub Court who teamed up to write something for us on that case that Imogen Miller, Emma Turnbull, and Margot Munro-Kerr. Yes, thank you to them. And, and perhaps just a, a short reminder that um, we are currently recruiting for new contributors at the moment. If um, if you're listening to this in the near future after after publication, um, I think we'll be um, we'll still probably be receiving um, applications at that point. And um, just quickly before we move on, I, yeah, I've done a few of these Ethiopian OLF cases over the last few years, and it's been quite laborious, kind of talking judges through how the situation has changed 
since 2007, such that actually it's basically stayed the same. Uh, and there have been changes on the ground. You know, there have been changes, but uh, things have gotten better. Things have gone worse. Things have gone better. Things have gone a lot worse. Uh, and this this <laughs> helps cut through all that, which is nice. Also this month, the Afghan Citizens Resettlement Scheme officially launched, but it's not actually resettling anyone. It's just processing people already in the UK rather than bringing people over from Afghanistan or, or countries in the region. So it's not much of a resettlement scheme, I would say. There are also a couple of concessions for Afghan citizens. So the regular immigration rules are being relaxed in certain respects, uh, such as how much documentary evidence you need to provide in a standard immigration application as an Afghan. But again, that's only for people who are already here. Um, specifically, you need to have arrived before the 1st of September 2021 or applied for a work or student visa before that date. Um, so maybe useful on the margins in some cases, but it's uh, tinkering, really. Yeah, it's good news for those it helps. But um, I mean, both these developments, good news for those it helps. But um, there aren't many new people who, who are actually caught by it. And what's sort of not said here is if you are... Afghan and you can get you can get to the UK somehow or other in a dinghy or whatever then you you know you've got a very good case for for asylum at the moment and um, yeah that shouldn't be forgotten speaking of work visas we had a statement of changes to the immigration rules this month it is HC1019 some statements of changes are very wide ranging and do lots of different things this just does one thing which is to make frontline social care workers eligible for skilled worker visas which is good for the sector. They are also on the shortage occupation list, which basically just means they can be paid a little less than the normal minimum salary for a skilled worker. And those applications will be uh, open for business from the 15th of February. Yes, and, and also to point out that um, we we think asylum seekers who've been here for at least six months, I think it is, will be eligible to apply to... to is it six months or a year? I'm not sure off the top of my head, actually. I think it uh, year, six months. It might be a year, yeah should be able to apply to do that. We're not quite sure how, though, and it, it wouldn't be completely surprising if the Home Office didn't change those rules as well because the Home Office is just really, really strongly opposed to asylum seekers having the right to work because they consider it to be a pull factor that sort of attracts people to the UK. And, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that's going to last for asylum seekers, should we say. No, but certainly as the rules, as they stand, uh, jobs that are on the shortage occupation list are uh, asylum seekers can, in principle, apply to work in those jobs uh, if they've been waiting more than 12 months uh, for a decision. So in theory, that might open up social care jobs to uh, asylum seekers. EU law rights. Um, a few cases and issues here. First of all, can Zambrano carers apply to the EU settlement scheme? Uh, Zambrano carers being non-EU citizens who are the primary carer for a British citizen. So typically you're talking about single mums with British kids. And if they can use the settlement scheme, uh, they can get indefinite leave to remain after five years rather than 10 on the normal Zambrano route. And they'd save thousands and thousands of pounds in application fees. So it's a high stakes issue for those people. Um, the Home Office had, uh, its stance was that Zambrano carers couldn't use the scheme if they could get permission to stay in the UK through another route elsewhere in the immigration rules. That was challenged in a case called Akinsanya. The High Court decision was last year. The Court of Appeal has now dismissed the Home Office appeal there, uh, which is good. 
But those who have been following this very closely, and uh, Beth Anlant at Praxis wrote about it for us, they deal with a lot of these Zambrano cases, they say it's not really clear, despite the ruling in favour of these cares, it's not really clear what happens exactly now as a result. Um, and the Home Office could, it, it's, the ball is back in the Home Office's court, and what they could potentially do is just tweak the rules a, a tiny bit to respond to the judgment without necessarily letting Zambrano carers use the settlement scheme. So uh, that would be a shame, to say the least, but we await developments. Uh, the judgments, Akinsanya of 2022 EWCA Civ 3.7. Yeah, I haven't really got anything to add on this one. It's um, We just have to wait and see what the new rules are going to be. I, I'm not holding my breath. I'm not optimistic. Along with refugees and, for some weird reason, amateur sportsmen, Zambrano carers seem to be right at the top of the Home Office sort of uh, at least favoured list, should we say. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not expecting good things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not that Zambrano carers won't be able to stay or anything. It's just that they won't be able to move off the 10-year pathway to the settlement. Which, as Bethan says in her post, it makes a huge difference, huge difference, you know, 10 years and having to apply with, you know, substantial application fees several times over that, over that period compared to the free application under the EU settlement scheme. Um, it's a big difference. Moving then to EU citizens who are being targeted for removal over pre-Brexit criminal offending. The Home Office has conceded that while deportation proceedings in those circumstances are ongoing, people retain their residence rights. That is to say, they can work and claim benefits if they need to, and so on, even if they're being lined up for deportation. Obviously, they might still end up being deported at the end of the process, but they don't become an unauthorized migrant as soon as the Home Office sort of sends them a deportation order, which is important. And the person in this case wasn't even a migrant actually he's lived in the uk all his life uh, but he is portuguese rather than british there's no judgment in the case but there is a consent order which uh, you can read on the doughty street chambers website yeah important case quite a few people are going to be affected by this one and um you know it's the home office being caught out acting inconsistently with the withdrawal agreement um but yeah happily to be fair to them they did they did eventually concede that then we have one of these legacy EU law appeals from before Brexit. Um, this is about if you are the victim of domestic abuse, do you have retained rights of residence under EU law if you weren't married? So to illustrate, the case involved a Mr. Singh, who was uh, the partner of an EU citizen. He had a residence card on that basis. Then the relationship broke down because of domestic abuse against him. And the argument was, well, if we divorced because of this abuse, I'd get to stay. Uh, so what about the breakdown of this durable relationship? Do I not get to stay uh, as well? Given the domestic abuse scenario, the upper tribunal says, no, that's not what the directive says. Married and unmarried people are deliberately treated differently. So there's no case under the EEA regulations for retained rights of residence for former partners who suffer domestic abuse. That said, uh, Nicole Masri from Rights of Women did get in touch uh, to point out that the rules under the EU settlement scheme uh, are much more generous when it comes to domestic abuse. So people should not be put off by this ruling if they were in a relationship with an EU national that broke down because of domestic abuse. The settlement scheme should help you stay. Um, but this case, as I say, on the position under the old EEA regulations, um, a different outcome there, and that's called Sing EEA EFMs 2021 UKUT 319 IAC. 
yeah, it belatedly occurs to me that I missed somebody off the um, off the Home Office's least least favoured list, didn't I? I think durable partners are right up there with refugees, amateur sportsmen, and Zambrano carers. The Home Office really don't like the idea of durable partners, but uh, there we go. Uh, yeah, dependent relatives, I think, is the uh, complete oh yeah, part list. it's quite a long list. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think if we come up with a comprehensive one, it would be quite a long one. Yeah. Uh, there's also been a case on marriages of convenience uh, to uh, continue our theme of uh, people the Home Office uh, takes against. Um, basically, the Upper Tribunal reiterates in this case that even couples who are in a genuine relationship can be found to be in a marriage of convenience. So it's not a sham marriage. It's not a fake relationship invented for immigration purposes. But if the predominant purpose of getting married um, this genuine couple getting married is to gain an immigration advantage then the home office may still take a dim view of it in this particular case i don't think that distinction made a big difference because the tribunal said this was a sham relationship um but that concept of marriage of convenience is just a real bummer for people who are legitimately in a relationship they're coupled up maybe they bring their marriage forward for visa reasons which seems reasonable and um, lots of decisions go into getting married and when um there's much more to that case and that whole issue obviously uh Prius Lanky has some useful commentary for us uh, she literally wrote the book on this subject uh the judgment she was writing about is called Saeed Deception Knowledge Marriage of Convenience 2022 UKUT 18 IAC I don't. I don't think we're at a terrible risk of being reclassified as as after the watershed or whatever. If I just say this is just bollocks, isn't it? It really is, and especially because the tribunal didn't need to get into this. It, it's all obiter, all this nonsense about marriages of convenience, and it's also contrary to yeah. The, the, the judge quotes from this this court of appeal case, Molina, which was actually um, struck out effectively. I quite can't think what the terminology for it is, but there was a consent order agreeing um, between the parties that, that Melina was wrongly decided, basically. So it is just a load of nonsense. And it's it's just, you know, words don't mean what they mean kind of type stuff. It's, it's ah, I, this one really, really irritates me. Uh, rightly so, but it's important to be aware of it nevertheless. Um, we will end on deprivation of citizenship, which is thankfully not mainstream immigration practice, or at least not yet, but still... Very important. Uh, I did the last podcast on this subject with Alistair McKenzie, who is uh, very clued up on these things. And uh, just on the same morning as we recorded, actually, so we didn't get a chance to discuss it, but the Court of Appeal came down with a ruling that the Home Office does, in fact, have to give people notice if it's taking their citizenship away, um, because that's literally what the British Nationality Act says they have to do. Now, the Borders Bill, as is now well known, would amend the British Nationality Act to let citizenship deprivation happen without notice, which is pretty dark stuff. So I suppose this ruling from the Court of Appeal, Colin, maybe doesn't matter because it'll be reversed within weeks by the Borders Bill. The citation is D4 brackets, notice of deprivation of citizenship, close brackets, 2022 EWCA Civ 33. Yeah, it's it's um it's a big issue, isn't it? I, and um, you, know, you go back to 1981 and and before that, when this was being debated, um, it was a time when you know the Cold War was at its height. You know, this existential threat um against the security of, of of this country and others, and yet parliamentarians deliberately, consciously built in these kind of procedural protections because they were 
aware that taking somebody's citizenship away was such a serious thing to do. And this was also back in the days when it was only a naturalized citizen who could have their, their citizenship taken away. You know, the law has been massively relaxed since then, so that even those born British can have it taken away. The procedural protections are being stripped away. You know, the government's arguing it's a time of unprecedented threat. It's, it's just, it's not though, you know, it's not, it's not worse than the First World War, the Second World War, you know, the Cold War. And you can see why it seems convenient to the Home Office to do this. You know, in the short term, they can stop people coming back. They can, you know, fob somebody off on another country. It's a, it, it's a way of dealing with a national security threat, but it's a really opportunistic, wrong way of dealing with it, in my view. And yeah, you know, that this, this, this protection that was clearly deliberately written into the, into the 1981 Act, we're, we're just about to lose that as well, um, which is which is very sad. There was an upper tribunal case about deprivation of citizenship uh, we should cover. Uh, this was for fraud rather than um, national security concerns. Um, but the circumstance, the facts of the case are uh, very grim. And I, I'd actually give a trigger warning that if you don't wish to hear about uh, the sexual offence involved and do skip ahead a minute or two. The appellant was Indian. He naturalised as British, but in between his naturalisation application being submitted and the later decision to grant the citizenship application, he raped an eight-year-old boy. He doesn't seem to have been charged until sometime later, a good time after he was accepted as a citizen. He was granted uh, citizenship. But what the Home Office wanted to do was, once I suppose he'd been through the criminal process, was take his citizenship away, not on the basis that would be conducive to the public good, and not under the Section 40, Subsection 2 deprivation power, but on the, I suppose, more technical basis, really, that he'd concealed a material fact, um, Section 40, Subsection 3. And technically, you're under an obligation to notify the Home Office if something comes up while your naturalization application is pending. It's it's there in the small print. So their argument effectively was that if you rape someone while your application is pending and you don't tell the Home Office, then you've concealed a material fact and that is sufficient to be stripped of your British uh, nationality. Uh, the Upper Tribunal uh, dismissed his appeal against that approach. Uh, the case is Walile, uh, Deprivation, Self-Incrimination, Anonymity, 2022 UKUT 17 IAC. Yeah, it's a horrible, horrible set of facts. Um, and it, it it raises that issue in my mind of um, the difference between naturalised and you know, so-called natural-born citizens and it sort of raises the question of whether it was a historic mistake to abolish that distinction. You can see why policymakers did it. I think it dates back to 2006. You know, having two classes of citizen is undesirable in some ways. And you can see why getting rid of the distinction between how, about how you obtained your citizenship sort of makes sense from some perspectives. But you know, when it comes to a really serious offence like this, somebody who's chosen to be a British citizen feels to me like the threshold for taking that away again shouldn't be as high as somebody who didn't choose to be a British citizen, who was born British. And, you know, th- there could be some national security reasons why it might be appropriate in some cases where you're sort of natural born British, so to speak. Um, but you know, I can see an argument for there being a lower threshold in, in naturalisation cases. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, that's that's not a position that necessarily everybody would agree with. It's 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 all me thinking off off the off the bat, so to speak. But um, I think you know there are some there are some interesting issues here, and they just weren't very clearly discussed back in 2006 when this stuff was being rammed through Parliament. And you know, it's only now that people are aware of the changes that have taken place. You know, many years previously, because of this. To my mind, fairly technical change actually in in the Nationality and Borders Bill. You know, it's this this business about um, about notice is is no big deal in comparison to you know treating naturalised and natural born citizens the same and you know and 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 all those other changes that took place back in in two thousand and six and prior to that. So there is this sort of belated debate, but but many years too late after the effect. It would be good for this this to be looked at. Properly, you know, a proper sort of review, royal commission type thing to actually go through these really meaty, really difficult issues. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good point that this is obviously a long running uh, power that's been used, uh, as we discovered in, in uh, some recent analysis, hundreds of times uh, since th- two thousand six. Um, I mean, it's you know just because the public are only becoming aware of it now. The news cycle is a funny thing, and if people only get outraged at a certain point, then that's that's fine. But the issue is, like, even if there is, if that groundswell of opinion does produce the best possible result from the borders bill, i.e., this clause remo- removing the notice requirement is is dropped, which seems unlikely. But I mean, that would be, I guess, a, a big win in the short term. But it would still leave intact all the things you, you, you've talked about, the, all the the rolling back of safeguards since two thousand six. So it's. Uh, Arguably relatively small potatoes, really. Yes. And on that note, I think, I think we'll end the podcast. So it's a bit of a downer to, to finish on. We try to we try to finish on a an up note sometimes, don't we? But I think we've failed this this month. Next time. Next time. Next time. So that's it from us. Goodbye. <laughs>